You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, welcome to KUCI. This is Real People OC, and I am your host, Kimberly Martin. And today I am excited to talk to you a little bit about creativity and what that can do for you vis-a-vis a a career or a life or, um, I don't know, there's just so many people have creative talent and ability. And every now and then you run across somebody who gets a chance to do something with that. And there's just a real richness in being able to do what you love in life. And we all talk about that, but so few of us actually get to do that, that, I don't know, it concerns me a little bit for us. We, um, we are creative people. We're multifaceted and there's so much to us and to our lives. And I don't know, every now and then you run across somebody who actually gets to dig really deep into that side of their personality. And so I thought it'd be fun to bring in a couple who've been doing this together and um, introduced you to them because it's just, it's pretty incredible, their stories. So now Susan Hornbeak Ortiz and Russ Ortiz are the owners of Shine by Show, an Orange County high-end and locally manufactured furniture and home accessory company located in the Laguna Design Center. And as an industry thought leader, mother, owner, and businesswoman, Susan has made a significant impact in the interior design industry. And they together are preparing to launch her 2014 spring collection this spring. So that's pretty exciting. They offer a luxury home decor brand specializing in the most fashion-forward lines of upholstery, case goods, and lighting. So interestingly enough, Russ Ortiz had a long-standing career in business. Prior to working for Shine by Show, he was the vice president of global brand communications at Oakley and has had a made a pretty impressive career in global brand development all around. And so he decided to step in as CEO and bring the company to profitability within three years. And together they built a multi-million dollar global operation. And uh, I'm just so excited to have you here today. Susan Hornbeek Ortiz and her husband and partner, Russ Ortiz. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. Thanks. I'm excited to have you. One of the things that I've been exploring probably in my own personal life, but also here at the studio is this concept of how do you take these creative passions, which I don't know, I'm I'm in my 40s, gosh, did I say that on the radio? (laughs) But I just, I'm like, it's like overflowing now. It's, it was always there, but I was busy doing college. I was busy getting a job. But now I'm thinking, gosh, maybe this little voice or these, you know, these, these passions and desires to be creative should really be listened to. And so I wanted to explore that today in our discussion with you, because you seem to be an individual that has really done that in your career. And I want to hear about the ups and the downs, but also just about what it was like to say, hey, I'm going to take that creative and passionate spirit and do something with it. So that's why I have the two of you here today, because you're a perfect example of this notion of being creative in the business world and then making it work for family and and for business. So let's talk about that. Well, I think we're a great balance because he's the business side and I'm the creative And when we started on this venture 10 years ago, I had come off of almost 15 years of a fine art career, exhibiting artists, photography, sculpture, installation art. 
And Russ was in working at Nike, very high executive, uh, VP of global branding or I, lo- yeah. I love it that she looks at you to <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. it was such an impressive <laughs> yeah. position but what was well, it well it was he had I was a, a lot marketing of, intern for about 10 years there <laughs> he so had no. a lot of different positions but um that's priceless we were going through we were, had been in portland at that time for about eight years working at nike and i was exhibiting up there as an artist as well as down in california and I think what inspired the change was moving back to family and back to California. We, our kids were young. We had two other children when we were in Portland. So we're like, you know, we have four kids now and they're not, they're missing out on cousins, grandparents, et cetera. And the funny thing is we, we brainstormed on all these things we could do together because we like this idea of actually mapping out our future and really being very clear about that, that we wanted to travel, we wanted to work together, work from home, have something together where we could maybe live wherever we wanted to live eventually. So it was very idealistic in a way. And <laughs> that's for sure, especially for me, given, you know, I'd only worked for two companies. One uh, was Pricewaterhouse for, and then for Nike. And so I really had no entrepreneurial experience and we were in our mid-30s. And so um, we decided to take the plunge and, and make a go of it. It was a time to do it. So that's kind of where we went. But what's interesting about it is our company being was third on the list. Which company? Shine. So by Shine. Sh- by, well, actually, by originally we were Shine Home, Inc. And that's like a whole other story with the rebranding that happened about four years ago. But um, we were looking at a glass lamp that we had in our collection that was so beautiful made in West Virginia. We discovered, we did a lot of research on it. And I said, you know, there, I've been in art, furniture design growing up as a very young person. It was just surrounded by design. My mom was an interior designer. And I said, you know, the lighting world really needs great lighting designs. Why don't we, why don't we make lamps, you know, and resurrect old molds and, so we went on this journey and I was like, I don't know, I don't have experience, but I'm like, I do, I can, you know, I can do this. And I said, okay, well, I'll take a break from my art career for two years and then we'll get this company up and going and then you'll run with it and I'll go back to my art career. So that was sort of the plan in the beginning. So the origin of Shine, not to, to be catchy, but was really lighting. It was. Yeah. In, in That's the why beginning. we called it Shine. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I love it. Yeah. It was. Okay, so what did you see in the lighting industry that you thought needed to be changed or to be well, um, enhanced. When we were looking at these glass lamps, I was so intrigued by the process. I think as an artist, that's what draws me to everything that I do, process, materials. And it was this lost art. And I thought it would be very interesting to see what we could do with that because nobody was actually doing it. They were doing ceiling mounts. Yeah, it was the only really one of the last actually production glass factories in the United States, basically all glass for manufacturing purposes. Now, art glass is still blown in the United States, but as far as like manufacturing glass, there's really only a couple places left, and one of them is in West Virginia. Um, um, And that's kind of where we started, um, was to be able to do production glass here in the United States. And so being a, a... a sculptor and installation artist, I loved doing research. So we just set on this journey of finding out where they are made, et cetera. And we we launched, I don't even remember the date. 2004 is when we started the company. We shipped our first product actually, I think in March of 2015, but the company was founded in 14. 
It oh. was all stacked in our 2004, room. sorry. Yeah, it was that 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Wow, you guys got busy fast. Yeah, yeah exactly. We've <laughs> been busy for five minutes. <laughs> Look what you can do. <laughs> Look what you can do if yeah. you just dream But I think it. what we saw really was a gap kind of really in designer um, lighting, which was to um, basically premium designers um, really coming forward and looking for unique designs for high-end clients. And, and that's really where we were founded because our price point was actually fairly elevated when we started. All of our lamps retailed for over $1,000. So for us, it was really important um, to say, okay, this is a premium market. It's not being served. How do we do that? And that's how we found it. You know, when I did the business plan, the projections, um, you know, we didn't have to do a ton of volume because our margins were pretty, uh, pretty healthy based on the price points. We really were looking to market the product, and that's how we founded uh, the company. And it was actually a suitcase, um, me coming and traveling to high-end retailers and designers and opening my bag of tricks and, and selling them $1,000 lamps. And that's kind of how it got started. Well, so this was no foreign environment for you, though, with your experience, right? Well, um, you know, I'd always been in apparel and footwear, um, but, you know, it's a consumer product, so and selling it to the trade or business to business. So I did have a lot of experience from a sales and marketing standpoint, but never in kind of lighting or, or home products. So, uh, but, you know, the principles are the same. You want to create a fantastic product, which, which Susan did, um, be able to present a, a profitable scenario to your retailer to say you can make money and we can make money. And I think that's kind of the, you know the secret you always want to do it can't be a two-way street where you're profitable and a business isn't they both have to work and, and that's where we went out and pitched um, and we had good success to start with well that's pretty exciting so talk about the early days and then don't let me forget to ask the question about the light bulb because I'm sure that really comes into play <laughs> big time in, in your design so I want to make sure we have a discussion about that too well, early days after we received the first shipment in our living room we had planned to uh, move back to California and we bought an Airstream trailer and parked it actually the back bay while we renovated in Newport. Our, in Newport, while we renovated our home uh, that we're currently in in San Juan Capistrano. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> so that was actually a great adventure. We brought all the kids in, the dog, and what year was that? 2005. Five. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd left Nike um, and we decided to start this company together. And so we packed up the uh, trailer, as Susan said, came down to California and set up shop near family and friends, which was really important to us. Um, and then go out and figure out how to how to make this business work. And, um, you know, we didn't know a ton about it. You know, we knew how to make great product. That was the first thing and, and really the, the, the key to the whole thing. But the sales and marketing thing was a hit and miss thing. And that, that was a challenge in the beginning and there's uh, interesting stories in that for sure. Probably some good business uh, <laughs> lessons to be learned. Well, the whole thing, I think I had a coach for a while when Russ was gone at Oakley, and he just said, you know, this is this is like getting your MBA. You know, you've had, you know, three intense years when Russ was gone with running the company, and, and that it's the whole journey has been such an education. We have learned it's all been trial and error, Looking back on it, you know, when our friends, we waved goodbye in the Airstream, I thought they thought we were completely bonkers. Like, what the hell? Like, leaving this great job, Nike, you know, you're a working artist, you're selling this amazing house, and you're going where, and you're doing what? But 10 years later... I've given my friends a few of those moments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. But I think 10 years later, we can, you know, honestly say, we can look at the showroom, we can look at what we've built... And the clients, the places we've traveled to, um, 
and say, I don't have a single regret. No, not at all. It's definitely been a learning experience, especially in the beginning. But we went through an interesting process where we launched as with Made in the USA product really to the high-end design market. And it's funny you learn these lessons. Um, our biggest clients, all of them became retailers. So Neiman Marcus oh, Home was our biggest retailer um, for a time there pre-recession in, in 2008, 2009, and we were not the way we planned to grow, but we grew very quickly in the retail market. Um, you know, on every corner there were home, uh, you know, home design shops that were selling high-end homeware, um, and everyone had a, a home equity line of credit, all the consumers, and they were looking to spend money on, on home products. And, and it was fantastic until the market crashed, and when the market crashed, that retail market for us just completely evaporated in 2008, and we had to make some drastic changes in the business. Interesting. So what you didn't start out as your strategy became your strategy for growth, but then it, it kind of was like a trader. It just was a quick fix and it just didn't really have the staying power. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we started out, you know, fairly small doing a few hundred thousand dollars in business and then went over the million and two million dollar mark really on the, on the backs of retail. And when that market completely dried up, I think I always tease Susan, I think, you know, the only business uh, that was worse than, than homeware, your home products, you know, when the market crashed was probably automobiles, everything. It was very difficult. And so retailers just completely cut back and we had to reinvent ourselves. And really um, that was the time where we kind of said, okay, we're going to take a step back, right size the business. Um, at the time when we were growing with retail, we had to start sourcing more and more in Asia to get a price point down and allow for the retail margins. Um, and so, um, as Susan hinted at, um, there was a time when I had to leave the business to support the family because the revenue wasn't generated enough for both of us. Um, and that's when Susan really took the mantle and leadership of the company. And we really completely transformed the business from an overseas sourcing model designed to go to retailers to getting back to the roots of what we started with Kimberly, which is really around made in the USA product. And we bought all our production back from Asia um, and now make everything in Southern California again and go after that high-end design market that really never abandoned us. It's so interesting because, you know, every business is actually working in the opposite direction when you read stories about it. So it's kind of exciting to hear a story that is is working in the reverse and and, and really being true to your roots in that manner. Um, I want to pause for a minute. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Real People OC. And I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and we're here at 88.9 FM in Irvine on KUCI. And uh, you can check us out by going to KUCI.org, um, but you can also go to Real People OC to find out more about our guests. Um, the other thing is, is you might uh, want a visual while we're having a discussion here with Shine, and uh, you can go see on the website photos of what we're talking about, Shine by Show, and I'm going to spell that. Shine is spelled S-H-I-N-E by B-Y, and then S-H-O for Susan Hornbeek Ortiz. And so Shine by Show, S-H-O dot com, and um, beautiful, beautiful photographs. So, so the lighting is really what drove your business. I want to talk about the light bulb. So, gosh, I, I'm just so bugged by the lighting in my house now. I, I'm a, a, I have a huge aversion to, you know, complex fluorescent lights. Yes, and <laughs> I, I just I can't I'm right there with even you. imagine what that would have done to you as a designer. Now I know you can go find people that are making the old incandescent bulbs because I've, I'm seeing those crop up at the at you know the um, the flea market type things where people are really. They do make them. They are making them. And they're online. You can buy but them. But I can't imagine that that would be a strategy for you going forward. How How is it working out? Well, we still actually uh, 
we're putting the incandescence in all of our pendants, although I'm working more with LED right now. But it's it's a problem. And most of the work we're doing is in chandeliers. So it's not it's an exposed bulb. Anyway. So, it so has we use, to be we decorative. use decorative bulbs, so we don't actually use uh, the white kind of. You don't the have normal. to use the unattractive little exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use decorative bulbs that are all outstanding. And in the future, that market right now is okay, but you know, eventually, that even that decorative market will go away. The big changes are for LEDs are going to be in the normal forty watt, you know, kind of or the white frosted that goes in a lamp. We don't yeah. really do those right now, but we are starting to get an LED lighting, um, which is one of our new pieces that you're looking at right now. Yeah, which is is new for us. So to kind of transition away from incandescent so the led lighting gives you some flexibility let's talk about that it gives you flexibility and well the piece more it glows and it depends on the application there's different there's bluer leds there's more yellow warmer i tend to gravitate gravitate towards the warmer but uh lighting is really uh it's interesting because it was a huge component of what we were when we started and i think my I get bored quite easily and I'm just voracious about creating and so we we quickly moved into accent pieces then we moved into upholstery and so now we're just a full-blown sort of lifestyle brand but what keeps it going I think the company is just design driven and that is that's our core Russ is so great at you know, looking at the collection, looking what I've developed and, and packaging it so that we can balance that that need to be fresh and on the cutting edge and make beautiful objects and beautiful pieces for people to curate and collect and hopefully have for a lifetime with the reality of you have to sell, you know, a certain amount of volume to make things um you know, profitable, profitable from a business standpoint. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I'm curious of how this might play out between the two of you, because we could probably do an entire show on what it's like to do business with your husband <laughs> or what it's like to do business with your wife and yeah. what, what that is. But we won't take the time to do that today. I didn't ask for permission ahead yeah. of time. Yeah. So um, I won't do that to you. But I'm fascinated. Do you ever design something where he just goes, uh, yeah, we can't make that and make money at it. So forget it. Just, you know, call it a one of a kind. Or how do we do that? Well, yes, he does. I think with. The production now moving to the U.S., it's different because we will prototype and we'll sample and we'll bring it into the showroom. And I I pretty much have carte blanche. I mean, the new collection, I have a lot of different very high-end materials. We've really taken it up a, a complete notch. I think we more butt heads if we do butt heads is when I'm working on, we, we develop for other lines as well so that's a huge part of our business for guilt guilt guilt.com and that is a multiple where we are producing containers worth of program sorry product for the client they are stocking it we design it develop it we actually shoot the editorials we have complete con- creative control and creative licensing. But what we do do, Kimberly, is we separate the labels. So we have a, our Shine by Show showroom line, and then we have what we call Shine by Show Studio, which is a line that we ex- produce exclusively for guilt.com. Um, and that allows us... that? Guilt, G-I-L-T.com, um, which is really the, one of the, the innovators in the flash sale, kind of event sale, kind of um, online, and they've grown into you know, a, a billion-dollar company um, on the backs of that. Um, but it really... 
get, gave us an opportunity, and Susan kind of mentioned, and I think you kind of touched on this interesting business conundrum because, you know, I really don't say no to anything that is in the showroom line. And, and really, um, because it's it's made, bench made here in Southern California, there's no inventory. Everything's custom made by hand. So we don't hold stock. Oh, um, nice. So we Boy, basically, everything is lead times from from four to eight weeks. Um, and that is the nature of that marketplace. They, you know, a high-end uh, designer, you know, four to eight weeks is not that long to wait for a job. Now, a different is when you're on online consumer, nobody's going to click and want something in four to eight weeks. They want it immediately. And so there's an inventory and stocking position. Um, and we transformed our business, as I changed about earlier, where we were a stocking business and lighting early. As we transformed and in, in moving more into upholstery and case goods overseas, we continue to have to stock goods. When the economy crashed, we basically sold off all that inventory, transferred our business into production here in the U.S., um, and then be, didn't have to take a stocking position. So what we do say, or what I would say no to, are things that, again, uh, present us with having to take stock. We like to make to order everything, and that's why we do chandeliers, pendants, and things like that, as well as case goods and upholstery here in the U.S. Um, and then we do our Shinebo Show studio line produced overseas that our client holds the inventory. So it's different. Okay. So that's interesting. So in that regard, you're licensing your talent. Licensing, but it's sort of, it's it's unique. It's not a straight license because our brand is still on it and we have, we travel for the brand. I mean, I have, we travel to the factories. It's almost like we're doing all of that, but then they're taking the, the actual physical stock position. So the risk for us is the collection so just we, not, not only being we, successful. Not that only do we risk. design, okay. but we also manufacture and then sell to the client. So it's not quite a licensing relationship. It's more of an exclusive collection that we produce for them. But Kimberly, we do have a licensing arm of the business where we do license Susan's designs. Oh, okay. um, she's developed the fabric line for a European mill house where we there's certain businesses that I don't want to be in because you have to be or we don't want to be in. One would be a fabric business. It just has a different sales cycle than furniture. It has a different sales force. It has different clients. It has different sh- trade shows. Um, so that's a great opportunity for us to garner income, leveraging Susan's amazing design talent um, and be able to license our designs and then just garner a design fee plus a royalty. Okay. All right. So it's fascinating to me all the different ways you can go with this, but let's go back to that the the very origin of what what we were talking about in the very beginning is that creativeness you've been able to take this creativity and go so many different directions with it um and you touched on this a little bit just saying you know you get bored easily and you have to do something new is that really the origin of the growth i think being bored is i don't really actually no, like I that yeah, word I, yeah i, I did i should take that back but you no i did say well, oh you did say it. okay <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't have words in your mouth either no i did say it I easily think, done in radio um but. it's Maybe more interesting would be to say I, I I'm just propelled and inspired to constantly create and make make things. It's just in me as a person. Uh, it was in me as a fine artist, and now as a furniture designer, it, it's it's like an addiction. I can't I stop. Love that. Yeah, it's like a fever. Maybe. It is, and it's constant. It, it just doesn't go away. I don't have boundaries where that's concerned. I can't turn it on and off. So nice. my sketchbook's always in my bag. Being a photographer, now I use my iPhone a lot for journaling. I don't carry my big, huge, you know, Canon around. But whenever we're traveling to factories, like if we go to India, we're in Shanghai, that we, I take time because travel is so important to what I do and learning about new cultures. 
photographing architecture, um, walking museum shows in different countries. Uh, it's just, it's so vast. Going to the antique markets and uh, buying antique things to come back for inspiration. It's just, I can't stop. And I guess if I do stop, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> it's <laughs> time to retire. So you're, you're just like this kinesthetic being that's out there just sort of taking it all in and translating it, really, like, a, like, like translating the radio waves. You just see it and you kind of maybe put your stamp on it. I mean, what would you say to a young designer? Like, what, what can they do with this fever that you're experiencing? Well, I think you need to stay current and you need to be constantly looking. I think it is important for me, at least. Some designers find that distracting, but I look at a lot of different things. I look at fashion, photography, architecture. It's, you know, even a walk on the beach can be inspiring for different different reasons. But I think at the end of the day, you have to stay true and it has to be authentic because there's so many copycat designers out there. And if you're just in it for it to be a business and make money, then that's, that's just something to do. It's not what we're interested in doing. And I think what we're interested in is always pushing the envelope with regards to design and, and, and looking back to history and using historical references, but I actually mix them all up and, there won't be one thing that you can point to in the collection. It might have Art Deco lines, and then it has this mid-century detail. So I I like that. I learned that as an artist, that there really aren't any rules from mixing colors to mixing materials. I guess at the end of the day, if as long as it's beautiful. And I, it's funny, we have this sort of bar. If, if I want it. That would be more Art Deco. Okay. If I want the piece, then I know I've done a good job. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have to she want designs it. for herself. For I sure. do. And, and, and that's actually probably where the origin of most design comes from is that passion to do something uh, that's all your own style and flavor. Mm -hmm. So uh, is there ever a time where you find that what you love doesn't sell? I think it, it, it does happen and it's hard. It's a hard thing. But then if we leave it in the line, something will happen and it, maybe it's it got picked up by a magazine or a designer put it in a job and it, it seemed to get a little bit of press or just maybe just wasn't the right time like maybe I was too ahead and it was too fashion forward and it sits there for a while and then all of a sudden we'll see a resurgence in that skew so we're very uh we usually don't pull things out of the line unless they've proven to be very difficult to produce because once we've made the sample We've invested in the photography, and if we love it, it's on our website. We don't. There's no investment. Right. That's the one thing I really learned from coming from, say, a Nike to a different industry is the market metabolism is so much slower. I mean, when you're dealing with a pair of sneakers, I mean, really the metabolism is you know in the first two weeks whether Ten it's going to sell. Yeah. You know, you know it's going to sell. It'll be in the mall, and in two weeks you'll know what you're pushing 10, 12, 15 percent. And if you're not doing that, you know it's not going to sell. Whereas in furniture, the metabolism much slower. I mean, we may have things in our line for a year before they really take off. But I think the interesting thing thing is, you know, Susan's career before we started Shine was, as she said, as a fine artist, where she would spend a whole year creating a show and then putting it up on the walls of a gallery 
and that getting that validation, um, I think, really prepared her for this, which is actually a little softer world because we never don't sell anything. You know, we'll put a design out there and it'll sell. There'll be some that are better than others. But I think when you're putting a whole gallery show together and you put it up there and you've worked on a piece for a year and it doesn't sell at all, you have zero validation. Do you know, I think that's right. I think that's a challenge. Maybe you can talk about that. I mean, I think that was I think the fine art world was much rougher than I think the furniture industry from where we are now, at least. Yeah, I think it was rougher, and I, I just reached a point where it, it, it lost its flavor. There was something about it. Now I still shoot photography for myself. We we do publish some of. We don't have a lot of it on the website. Do large prints, and it's still very much a part of my language as a designer and my language as an artist, and it really informs much of what I do. But I don't have that need to actually have that out in the world as a statement or a direction anymore because shine I'm able to work with so many different materials on a global nature where I can go work with artisans in India on rugs on a rug design that I developed here and actually work on the dyeing of the thread and and the the height and then we we walk the fields where the sheep are grazing to me it's just so much fuller and deeper than what I was doing before. So in a way, I almost feel like that prepared me for this because I'm much happier as a person. And the, I the process is the maybe process, a little more inculcating. It and just I, it's so tactile, and yeah. it's so it's far-reaching. And I feel that's important for me. Like I love setting beautiful spaces. To me, that's my greatest joy. So when I can set a beautiful space, or I have a designer who's bought several items and they send me the photo of the final piece. Because sometimes I'm actually in charge of setting the space, so I'm a control freak. Of course, that's my ideal. And other, I play just a small part, and I am almost, you know. You're working in concert yeah. with another designer. Yeah. Oh, I love that we started out by talking about lighting, but what I'm looking at are pictures of amazing sofa couches, coffee tables, um, chaise lounges. I mean, it's, it's so diverse, your work. I mean, I just... I find it so funny. You said um, you have a new spring collection out, but is the collection really done just for a season? Because it seems like an awful lot of work just to do it for one season for one year. No, How does that work? It stays. I mean, I mean, Russ, you could answer that better, but we, we, we launch it. We need to for press. You know, that's there's a cycle. It, it'll go. We'll probably do a capsule collection in the fall. It act, It's a great way for us to re-engage with our customers, to talk about trend and color and before we used to do it in the the format of trade shows and now we reset our own permanent showroom floor it's a lot more satisfying it's not as difficult as taking all your wares on the road and and shipping them all over the country so you don't do those types of trade shows anymore now that you have your own facility we don't we have hopes of opening a showroom in new york end of next year Uh and i i actually we showed in paris in 2010 that was the last um trade show we did was Maison and it was incredible. Boy that sounds exciting. No it was um, unbelievable off the planet I was so over the moon with this trade show Russ did not attend and so he's like I I need to see this for myself (laughs) so we are thinking of January 15 Maison that's me driving it I think he's like babe we're just that ship has sailed but it you maybe yeah maybe just to put yourself back out on the Well, the the collection is more sophisticated and it's more globally inspired. And I find that when we were in Paris, 
nothing like what we're doing is really over there. There's a lot of Scandinavian, there's a lot of Italian, but this sort of hybrid where you have cleaner lines, you have sort of a beach aesthetic, more approachable. I think a lot of people were very attracted to it. So we're considering that. So that would be how your spring collection has differed from other collections that you have had in the past or? I think the spring collection for me, I, I was working, I've been working on it for a good five months in the sketchbook and I was really struggling with the palette wanting to stay very neutral because we have a very modern, clean loft space, all white walls, uh, concrete floors. Where again is the showroom? I'm sorry. We're in Laguna, to ask. at the Laguna Design Center. Okay, that's down in Aliso Viejo or it's Laguna Niguel? It's Laguna Niguel. It's right off Aliso Creek Road. Okay, I've been there. Yeah. There you go. And we have a gorgeous space with uh, natural light. So I'm once I set the floor, you know, when we launched, reinventing it and thinking of it differently because ultimately you live there every day. It's like redoing your house. It's right. always difficult to do your own house. I could do someone else's in five minutes. So I was flipping through many periodicals and the new Chloe store in Paris was in one of the design journals I was looking at. And it was just so brilliant because it was so clean and the line is so clean. So white, blush, bronze, and that sort of sepia you know, deep sepia. And it reminded me of this article I'd written about how we have really lost our way in the digital age for this, not nostalgia of color, but there is sort of this nostalgia of old suitcases, you know, ballerina ribbons, like all these things that really spoke to me as an installation artist, because I used to collect a bunch of vintage junk all the time. Russ used to get so angry. <laughs> but, um, that and travel, you know, this sort of 1930s traveler that gets on the, you know, the old ships with their big, gorgeous trunks and all the handwork that goes into how we used to hand make things. And that's what we're doing now. We're trying to resurrect a craft uh, in a new modern way so that it's not old grandma furniture. It's the new sort of heirlooms. But to answer your question about the business cycle, we do actually create product and our largest collections are in spring and then we'll do a smaller collection in fall. So you're asking questions about when and why we introduce products. So our biggest collection is spring. There is no real huge seasonality to our business. We find that spring is always a good season for us as well as after the kids go back to school. Uh, September, October seems to be a strong time for us as well as uh, families prepare for the holidays and want their homes in great shape. So, uh, And we find a, a very slow period usually during the holidays and then kicks off again in January, February. So again, we do collect, do our collections around those sales cycles. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And with me in the studio today is Susan Hornbeek Ortiz and Russ Ortiz. And they are with Shine by Show. You can go see this at the website if you're interested in learning a little bit more. Shine, S-H-I-N-E by B-Y-S-H-O, Susan Hornbeek Ortiz dot com. It, it's just such a delight to listen to you talk about the quality of the work and and the tactile nature of everything. I don't think people realize how important that is to our humanness. So tell me about being an artist and what that's like working in that environment with those goals in mind. 
think it's it's difficult because you're all you're constantly on creatively but when I take a step back and I really think about it it's so satisfying because we will get on a, a cycle where I know certain projects or certain collections are due and sometimes it just doesn't come you know it'll be in sketchbook form and I love it in sketchbook form and we have so many other things being thrown at me that I can't give it the proper attention it might need to fully develop but once you get over that hump and it goes into the rendering and it goes into material selection it it's sort of a high because you're like oh my goodness like I was having such a hard time with this and now look it's coming to fruition and and soon it'll go to the factories and then there's this beautiful thing about action I mean I get addicted to going to the factory and looking at my samples because I'd be building them myself I'd be the crazy lady you know if I had you know our, a hammer and yeah <laughs> and I used to do all that myself but I leave it to the professionals now well I love that you're that where they make it is right here I, I think that is such a brilliant business strategy that you wouldn't have thought to be financially um, sound because so many people are taking their business overseas but in the case of what you're doing that real-time um, production it's probably absolutely critical that you um, produce here yeah, I think it's also about, you know, uh, target market and uh, always gets down to consumer and who you're seeking out. And, you know, our consumer for our showroom line is a high-end designer. And, you know, what, one of the things they always demand is some customization. So you may create a sofa that's 96 inches. They may want one that's 80. The thing about having production here in Southern California was we're able to make an 80-inch sofa. We're able to take a dining room table and said we may specify it's 54 by 54 inches. They may say, I want it 84 by 54. It's not a problem. Now, again, that market demands that type of customization and that kind of lead time. But our other label that we talked about, the studio that we do for guilt.com, is produced overseas. And it's a parallel process, but you lose that customization. You can't call China up and say, hey, make us one sofa. But they can make 50. And the relative price of it is going to be significantly less. So the studio line really opened the aperture of our brand to a different consumer, somebody who could maybe couldn't afford a higher-end heirloom quality uh, you know, piece that we were talking about that we make out of our showroom. And it's fantastic for us. So we have two sets of consumers that both appreciate the designs that Susan creates, but at different price points with different expectations and, and, and different things that come along with it. So for us, it's really um, having the tale of both worlds and tells that story of our process over the last 10 years of learning both supply chains really, really well. It's just been such a great um, time spending with you learning about this really cool meld of the creative artist in you, Susan, and obviously this I'm sitting next to this very intense gentleman. <laughs> I actually had to tell him to back up off the microphone a little bit, which is always the opposite for everybody else. But you certainly have that that drive of the entrepreneur, but of a of a businessman that understands your market. And I mean, what a beautiful, you know, I should like what a beautiful relationship. But really, <laughs> that is kind of a really interesting <laughs> example of how important that creative person finds that business person and that business person learns to work with a creative person. You may or may not be married, but Certainly, if you're a creative person, you almost can't exist without this component side by. You can't. I mean, you side. can make you can make whatever you want to make. Absolutely, I did it as a fine artist. But there is there, if your if your goal is to be more globally influential and actually grow and make a brand, you have to marry your star with someone who has that as an expertise. It's too much for one person to even think they could take it on. Because to be true to yourself as an artist or a designer, you need to focus just on that. 
to, to be successful. Otherwise, right. you're just going to be pumping out. Churning out churning stuff out. that's not necessarily yeah. what, what your passion it. is. But I think it's also the establishing of a brand, Kimberly, which is something that we feel like we really want to do and continue to do. And what Susan talked about with the, the design portion of it, and that's what you know I learned at Nike and Oakley, was this ability to, to create a brand. And what a brand does is create an emotional connection beyond just the product. Not, it's not just wood and cotton and velvet, but actually when you walk into a space, there's an emotional connection on a different level that makes you feel differently. So it, it's something that Susan does beautifully, and all great companies do, which is create great products. But the, it has to go beyond just the actual physical product and create an emotional connection with the consumer. And that's what we're hoping to do at Shine. You know, I don't think I really fully appreciated how important design was in our lives until I moved to Australia. And let me set this up by saying I love Australia and everything <laughs> about it. But it was a little bit like going to the Midwest in the 50s where exactly. most of the towns were very plain and very, um, well, let's say they were shaped like squares. And um, the bricks, they were just, everything was brick and mortar and just lovely lovely place but not a lot in the um, outside of the city of design work was being done and my husband and I had the chance to travel from uh, north of Sydney where we were living through Sydney and down to uh, Canberra and also to um, to Melbourne and I remember just being overwhelmed with emotion when I pulled into those two cities and I couldn't really understand it was just like you described earlier had my camera out taking pictures of every angle and um, Canberra is a very master planned community very um, made of concentric circles it's just beautifully laid out with a beautiful museum right down in the middle and uh, Melbourne is the same way just such a interesting you know electrifying meld of modern and um, victorian and the old yeah the old victorian age just just gorgeous um and i remember because i live here in california we have a lot of beautiful architecture at our fingertips if we want to but Mm -hmm. there wasn't anywhere i was in australia and it wasn't like i was deprived i mean it was we're talking about eight or nine months without it but I didn't realize how important that was, that being engaged on this very tactile and creative level, how significant it was for me. And it just, it gave me such a much greater appreciation for design and why we do it for ourselves and for our humanity. Can you touch on that a little bit for me? Well, I agree. And that, I think that's what drives me because we we sort of have this running joke in the studio and you say it hurts my eyes like you can't literally look at things when they're so bad and I and I know it's subjective and I I know that it can be perceived that I'm being judgmental like that's bad this is good um but I think ultimately our goal you know when we surround ourselves with nature it's so beautiful and I think when we when we look at design and and interiors environments I think the ultimate goal is to surround ourselves with beauty comfort beauty and there there's so many things that i mean what we're what we're designing and what we're consuming a lot of it is going to be around for a lifetime and we're we're hopefully handing these things down to our children generations and i think i take that very seriously you, you just don't want to have disposable you know crud that's just gonna go into the the trash heap and there is a lot of bad design. I think it affects your emotions. I think it, it can color certainly can affect everything you surround yourself you know, with. Or hotel choices. I've been really <laughs> yes, good at I making do. sure that wherever we travel, there is a, uh, a sense of design, which is important because it is. It is important. It, it affects all of us. And it affects your moods, too. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm very sensitive to light. I'm 
sensitive to color. I mean, more sensitive probably than most people. But I, it's very depressing when you have like dark interiors. You don't have, you know, darker colors where things it just kind of can bring your whole entire mood down. Well, and it's almost like you miss one of the greatest aspects of being human if you truncate your experience and just say hey we're going to limit you to you know this color palette I mean you like you've engaged yourself in such a deep and rich way when you let yourself be a part of this design mm-hmm. um, like you said whether it be your natural environment or but what you do something so grateful to yourself if you create an environment in your home that's so rich and significant to what's important to you yeah and um, I, it just is a much deeper way of living, wouldn't you think? I think it is. And I think it's important that, you know, you don't have to have a design professional. But I think you staying current on getting inspiration from digital magazines if you're just, you know, if you're just starting out as a young designer. But also listening to your clients. I mean, if you have those clients and, and pulling from them what's important and, and not necessarily stripping the place and making it whatever you want to make it each space needs to be deeply personal to whoever's inhabiting it and i know that's how our house is our home and our children are it's interesting people come in our house is so modern but it's very comfortable at the same time and kids come in and they're like wow this is really cool you know they can't believe we like live this way right and this i even fancy way. yeah this <laughs> fancy way it's not even fancy because everything you know kids can we're, we're not precious with anything I think probably because we make it all we're like oh we can we'll replace that or we can you know recover that but um I read a comment on a blog when we had our house published I think it was in Riviera a few years ago and and this woman said nobody lives this way like that was her comment she was so angry and like no we really live this way like I feel that living a very edited trying to keep as organized as possible that's just that's how I personally define my space and you know how I design as as a designer how I approach things it's just not cluttered it's not overdone it's clean it's simple it's 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 beautiful I'm 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 really happy I got a chance to look at the website and look at some of the pictures on there um we're drawing down on our time so as as we close and we want to give some final thoughts let's talk about really quickly what it's been like to dedicate your life to design and to creativity I feel it's been a labor of love it it really sometimes I want to pinch myself like this is really my job and Russ is so brilliant at reminding me yeah babe this is really your job now this is really what you do we're getting paid for this now (laughs) so there's something really transformational about that that you you have to take a step back or your partner which is what we try to remind each other of is we are doing this we are accomplishing our goals and and I I think that it's difficult because you're so you're in the minutiae every day and then if you if you do take a vacation or you step away from what you're doing you realize wow this is really cool this is really what we wanted so and now you have it. Yeah, and you're in the middle of it. Yeah, so I think it's going to evolve and become even more, I'm hoping, um, than what it is now. But as long as we stay true to our core, I think we'll be successful. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're and a 10-year overnight success. A 10-year overnight success. <laughs> yeah, that's what they always say, right? <laughs> 10 years. And so how about you? What was it like giving up your career to come and do this with your wife? Yeah, you know, it was it was interesting. The first time when we first started Shine by Show, you know, leaving Nike was 
hard. I mean, Nike's an amazing brand, an amazing company. I'm an, I grew up an athlete and always had a passion for sport. And so I, I had my dream job, you know, working in the sales and marketing groups at, at Nike. I mean, there's not much more of that traveling the world, going to great sporting events. It was fantastic to leave to, to start your own company. But, um, you know, we'd reached a time up in Oregon where we wanted to move back to Southern California at the level that I was at, at Nike. There really were no positions available in Southern California. Um, and so through that process, we decided to, to make that jump. And I was at a point in our life um, where we had had enough savings to have a couple years of salary in the bank um, when we left Nike. So it wasn't this huge risk of if this doesn't succeed in 90 days, we don't know where we're going to feed the family from. So, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to take risks. And everybody always says you do it no matter what. I, I am an entrepreneur that always looks at things and says I want to be planned to the point where I know things aren't going to go exactly right, and we have to have a safety net. I mean, we have a family of, with four kids, and so you know we didn't want to put their uh, you know uh, well-being at risk to start this business. So you know we did that and we jumped, and I was at a point where I was in our mid-30s that if it didn't work, I had a chance to recover because it's pretty tough if you're trying to do that sometimes later in life and then try to jump back in corporate life. And so, um, you know, I, I did it at a time where I felt like if it w didn't work out because some businesses don't for reasons beyond what you can control, um, we were able to jump back. And, and fortunately, um, you know, things went well for a while until the crash. And then I had to seek another job um, to support the family in the interim when the economy really turned. And I was lucky enough to find a great position at Oakley. Um, and that supported us for a few years as we right-sized the business. And then we jumped back into Shine, and now it's been, for the last two years, fantastic. And we've never had a better uh, outlook and, and better results um, than we have this last year. It sounds wonderful. Uh, such a journey that you two have been on. And I'm so glad that you shared it with us today. Um, Susan Ortiz, Russ Ortiz, what a pleasure to hear your story here at Real People OC. Well, thanks for thanks. having we us. Thanks, we appreciate it. It's great. Yeah. It was great. Thank you for being here. Okay.